So our workbook was a promise of rest, was our title. And um, so far, what we've learned in our study is that Jesus Christ is better than or superior to the prophets, the angels, the first Adam, Moses. And we've seen two warnings. The first one was don't drift in chapter 2. And the second one was don't doubt in chapter 3. And so now in chapter 4, the writer continues uh, the don't doubt warning for a little bit. But he also tells us that Jesus is better than Joshua and the Sabbath. And he also begins to show us how Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. And he just touches on that. The writer continues to apply the example of Israel. Just like the children of Israel failed to enter the land because of their unbelief, his audience of believers can also fail to enter into God's promised rest through unbelief and unfaithfulness to the Lord. And rest is the central message in chapter 4, or it was lesson 5 in our workbook. And this is what we're going to focus on tonight. God's rest is still available today to anyone who will accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and remain faithful to him. So tonight we're going to look at three points. Rest through faith in Jesus Christ, which will be verses 1 through 11. Then rest through the word of God in verses 12 and 13. And rest through prayer, verses 14 through 16. So look at our, let's look at our first point, rest through faith in Jesus Christ. And let's read verses 1 through 7. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. And that can be translated too late for it, or won't enter it, or have failed it. Verse 2, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. And he de- again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And there's a lot in these first 11 verses. But notice in first one, he starts off with therefore. The author continues without a pause his discussion from chapter 3 that unbelief or doubt is what kept the generation of Israelites that escaped from Egypt from entering the promised land. The rest for which God had promised and provided his people. We read that in Deuteronomy 12, that promises in Deuteronomy 12. But rest is a key word here. It appears twice in chapter 3 and eight times in chapter 4. The complete word study dictionary gives this basic definition of rest. To make, to cease, the act of resting or ceasing from labor. Also, a place of rest or a dwelling or fixed abode. And then they had a synonym for that word. And I'm not even going to try and pronounce that synonym. But that definition included 
not primarily the cessation of work with the resultant rest, but the restoration of lost strength and the inner rest experienced simultaneously in the work. In other words, rest can include ceasing from work, taking a break, but it also includes inner rest while still working. What did Jesus say to us in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30? If you went through our re- to our retreat, this was our theme, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus offers us his yoke. A yoke is an instrument for work in plowing fields. Jesus promised us rest for our souls, not necessarily for our bodies, but certainly for our souls while on this earth and after. The word rest or repose is used in Hebrews 3 and 4 in reference to God's rest. It's, it's stated in these verses in three, chapter 3 and 4, his rest or my rest. We see that in um, verse in chapter 3, verse 11 and 18, chapter 4, verse 1, 3, 5, and 10. So it refers to it as his rest or my rest, speaking of God's rest. And my rest is also used in quoting Psalm 95, uh, verse 11, in reference to the rest or the resting place that God desires to give his people. So rest is used here in Hebrews, uh, is something that belongs to God and he wants to give to his people to those who obey his ways and are faithful to him in their hearts. Verse 1 also says that the promise of entering God's rest still remains. The only way anyone can enter or receive God's rest is by faith in Jesus Christ. And the writer uses the example of Israel's unbelief to warn the Hebrew Christians and us today of the same potential danger of unbelief by rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and failing to rest in the finished work of salvation. And this unbelief will cause us to fall short of the rest God has for us. The writer also exhorts his readers in verse 1 where he says, Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. There are 13 exhortations throughout the book of Hebrew, and these are introduced by the phrase, Let us. The first one's here in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and we see three more in this chapter. I like what J. Vernon McGee said about this. He said, I, I can't talk like him, but he said, there's a great deal of us in Hebrews, or a great deal of let us in Hebrews, but, there is, but this is no mere salad epistle. Get it? <laughs> let us, let us. In other words, there's a lot of meat in Hebrews. <laughs> This exhortation can be translated as, let us get this fear. And the New Living Translation renders verse 1 like this. God's promise of entering his rest still stands, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. And J.B. Phillips renders this verse, Now, since the same promise of rest is offered to us today, Let us be continually on our guard that none of us even looks like failing to attain it. So God has promised and provided a rest for his people. That's God's part. But we have a personal responsibility to make sure we do enter into God's rest. 
and that's our part. Verses 2 through 7 tells us that the message was heard but not believed. Verses 2 to 5 gives us a parallel of the unbelief of Israel to believe and receive God's rest for them as given to them by Moses and the unbelief of God's revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. He paralyzed those two, what Moses said and what God has said about his son. Both had been delivered, the Israelites from Egypt and the New Testament believers from the world, which is a type of Egypt. The Israelites had been redeemed by blood as atonement for their sins, and we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ as the atonement for our sins. Both have been given the gospel, redemption through blood, and the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus Christ. The rest Moses spoke of was the land of milk and honey. It was a physical rest from Egypt, but they missed it because of unbelief. They allowed the reports of giants and a strange land to cause them to want to go back to Egypt. And in the same way, the readers of Hebrews are warned not to allow the circumstances, the difficulties, our culture, the worldly influence to cause us to want to depart from our faith in Jesus Christ, and in doing so, missing the promise of God's rest, well, on this earth and then in eternity when we leave this earth. So with the events of Numbers 13 and 14 in mind, the writer points out that Moses did not take the children of Israel into the promised land to enjoy his rest, but he assures us that the promise of God's rest still exists, and the key to entering that rest is faith in Jesus Christ. He tells us that in verse 3. Moses could not bring the children of Israel into God's rest, but Christ will give his followers God's rest. And the writer points out that the Old Testament points beyond itself And there is still a promise of rest for God's people today, beyond Canaan and beyond David's day. And because of that generation's unbelief, which led to disobedience, the only ones God allowed to enter the promised land were Joshua and Caleb and those under the age of 20. We read that account in Numbers 14. So the writer is clear that God's promise of rest will not be fulfilled in us if we have unbelief or hardness of heart like the children of Israel. And a hardened heart toward God was an actual state that the Israelites allowed themselves to be in. It has the idea of one's own fault. So for us today, unbelief in God's provision for salvation through Jesus Christ, or a hardened heart toward God and his word, ignoring his voice, neglecting his word, and neglecting those nudges of the Holy Spirit are all causes for us to fail to enter into his rest or come short of it. And so the exhortation here is that the Israelites fail to enter God's rest and we are not to fail. This exhortation should cause our hearts to be gripped with the fear of failing to believe God through his word, causing us to disbelieve and therefore disobey and rebel against him from a hardened heart. And then in verses 8 through 11, we see that salvation through Jesus Christ is superior to the rest of Joshua and the Sabbath. Verse 8 through 11 reads, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. 
There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And here the writer points out two Old Testament facts. In verse 8, that Joshua had the task of bringing the people to rest in the promised land. And then in verse 10, that God rested on the seventh day. Verse 8, the rest in Canaan was for all the Israelites, but not all entered it. We saw that in verse 6. Joshua led some of the people into Canaan, those that were under the years, uh, the age of 20, but he could not give them complete rest. The promised rest Joshua led them to was a temporal, physical rest, and it pointed to a type of rest or the better final rest in Jesus Christ. Again, the Old Testament pointing to Jesus Christ. So for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, God has given us that better or final rest. Verses 9 through 10, God's rest is compared to the Sabbath rest of creation. Verse 9 says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And the word rest here in this verse, in verse 9, is the word for Sabbath. And the Sabbath was the setting aside of the seventh day and was intended to be a day dedicated to honoring and communing with God. It was to rest from all secular work and be a day of fellowship with the Lord. And the reason for keeping the seventh day as a holy Sabbath day is because God, Yahweh, rested after the six days of creation or his creation. So for believers in Jesus Christ, Romans 14 and Colossians 2 clearly points out that The Old Testament Sabbath days are no longer applicable as we come to Christ. Mark 2, verses 27 through 28, Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And so because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can enter that Sabbath rest through his work alone and completely, and as a result, be in fellowship with God every day, all day, not just one day out of the week. God's rest on the seventh day was the satisfaction of his looking upon his creation, and he saw that it was good, and it was complete, and it was perfect, and he rested. So we now, as a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, we can rest in the good and the complete and the perfect work of salvation through Jesus Christ. Verse 10 also tells us that believers in Jesus Christ, or as believers, we no longer have to try to earn salvation or righteousness by works. Just as God rested after his creative work was completed, we can rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ, which is the final better rest. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, Faith in Jesus Christ, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. John 19.30 says, what it, uh, he, Jesus said, it is finished. As he hung on the cross and he gave up his spirit, he said, it is finished. God is completely satisfied with what Jesus did for the sinner. His crucifixion and his resurrection is complete and perfect for salvation. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't have to work for our salvation. We can cease or rest from works for salvation. Rest in Jesus Christ is the better and final rest 
for now while we're on earth and after when we leave this earth. Because we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we can rest that one day we will be either ushered into heaven to be with Jesus or we'll go with him when he comes back for his church. And I pray that happens tonight. Just as the Father rests in his satisfaction of Jesus Christ, we too are to enter into that rest of satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Verse 11 gives us a second exhortation, beginning with let us. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Verse 1, we're exhorted to fear, and now we're exhorted to be diligent to enter God's rest. Diligent here means to use speed to make every effort to do one's best, be prompt eager or earnest. In Spanish, those of you that speak Spanish, we say con ganas. It means give it your all with a passion, with desire. The antonyms listed for this word diligent is to neglect, to be forgetful, to forsake, let go, delay, and be lazy. We must have a desire and a passion for God and his word, because if we don't, we're going to neglect it. We're going to forget it. We're going to forsake it. We're going to let it go. We're going to delay and be lazy about it. If we don't cultivate a passion for the Lord, we will drift, which was our first warning in chapter 2. And we will doubt, which is our second warning in chapter 3. And before you know it, we are neglecting so great a salvation. Someone said, neglectors become rejectors. And the way that we can be diligent is by obedience to the scriptures. We must not go against God and his commands. If we are not diligent to enter God's rest, the result will be the second part of verse 11. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, that example of the Israelites. They missed the promise of rest through unbelief that resulted in disobedience. And so we too can still miss or come short of the promise of rest through unbelief in Jesus Christ and disobedience to the word of God. And so because the finished work of Jesus Christ, he is superior to Joshua and the Sabbath, and we can truly receive God's rest through faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. But we must guard, we must protect, we must hang on to that faith and belief. We must be diligent and passionate about our faith in Jesus Christ. So, what is the condition of our hearts tonight? Have we accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And if so, are we truly, truly resting in him? Have we entered into God's rest? Or is there anxiety, strife, turmoil, and unrest in our hearts? Do we have that deep peace of Christ filling our mind, our heart, and our life, regardless of the times we live in or the circumstances we might be in? And rest in Christ is the issue here, ladies. The Hebrews were freaking out, ready to throw in the towel, ready to turn their back on Jesus and returning to their religion. You know, sadly, I've seen in the years that I've walked with the Lord, Christians do the same. I've seen some come across difficult circumstances and they didn't trust Jesus and all that he's promised us, including his rest. And they're no longer walking with the Lord. And and some of them had walked for a long time. And they allowed their circumstances or the culture to influence them to be unfaithful to the Lord. 
And not one of them is better off today. Their problems only became worse, and some died in their unfaithfulness and rebellion, just like the Israelites. You know, it's difficult to live in this dark world as it is today. I mean, it's ugly out there. Just turn on the news. It's bad. But to do so without Jesus Christ, it's just, it's inconceivable. It's impossible. So we have to be diligent to enter into that rest by our obedience to his word and by our passion for him. And we have to pursue that, guard it, protect it. What did Jesus promise us in John 16, 33? These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. That also means comfort or courage, for I have overcome the world. God has a rest for his people, and he wants to give it to us. And we can only know and receive that rest through faith and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So let's beware, let's be careful, let's be fearful to make sure that we do enter into God's promised rest. And we will find rest for our souls, even in this sometimes very crazy life. I found a poem which is appropriate. Looking to Jesus, my spirit is blessed. The world is in turmoil. In him I have rest. The sea of my life around me may roar. When I look to Jesus, I see it no more. Our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in Jesus Christ. So next, the writer gives us two vital aids in entering into God's rest. And the first is the word of God, which brings us to our next point. Rest or the word of God, which will be verses 12 and 13. Let's read those two verses. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The author here reminds us of the uniqueness of the word of God. Verse 12 tells us that the word of God is living. It has a meaning of being alive, active, enduring, as opposed to what's dead or inactive. In John 4.10, where Jesus asked the Samaritan woman for a drink of water, he said to her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the word living there for living water means water of running streams and fountains as opposed to that of stagnant pools and marshes. So living here in John 4.10 is the same word used for God here in verse 12 or for the word of God in verse 12. Next, we read that the word of God is powerful, and the powerful powerful has a meaning of energy. And it carries uh, the meaning of being capable of doing something like when one is engaged in work. It also means active or being effective in causing something to happen, able to bring about something, getting the job done. And interestingly, uh, the Complete Word Study Dictionary states that This form of the word uh, in Greek and the verb form seem to have been used almost exclusively as medical terms referring to medical treatment and the influence of medicine. 
and which it fits in with the next part of verse 12, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. The word sharper here is fine-edged or keen, having the capacity to cut efficiently or swiftly as if by a single stroke. Like a surgeon's scalpel, it's precise. It's used to remove the unwanted, deadly elements of the body. And God's word does the same with our hearts and our minds as we read his word. Two-edged sword, it's cutting on both sides. In Revelations 1.16, Jesus is described as the one who possesses the sharp two-edged sword. Piercing has the meaning to pass through or pierce through, to penetrate or to reach through. Even to the division, it means the separation of or to divide between, of soul and spirit. And soul and spirit are sometimes used synonymously. They come from root words, which means breath or life. But sometimes these words can mean understanding or mind or affections or desires of the heart. But here in verse 12, it carries the meaning of the the immaterial part of man upon which the word of God is operative. It's that intangible part of a person's being that can only be touched by God's spirit through his word. And the author completes this thought by adding joint and marrow as a metaphor for the effects of the word of God, which reaches into the innermost being of a person. The last part of verse 12 says that the word of God is also a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart, meaning the purposes or the intentions. Discerner means uh, like a critic or judge. In other words, it's able to judge or discern what's in our mind, our, our ideas or notions, our intentions or our purposes. And so when we read God's word, we'll know that it's discerning between these. And it's at that point that we need to decide if we're going to yield to the obedience of the word of God or go with our own understanding. The Lord shows you as we're reading it, we, he, he shows us what is of the flesh and what is of the spirit. Only the word of God can do all this. Only the word of God can enter that innermost part of a person. It can reach that place within a person where no doctor, no psychologist, no therapist, no spouse or family member, friend, or anyone can reach into a person. Only the word of God can reach into the depths of our being. And only the word of God can judge our thoughts and intentions or motives. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 8 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The word of God is the best medicine for our soul. The word of God has a vital power in of itself, and it will exert that same power upon our souls and our hearts and our minds, bringing to us life in Christ and energizing us, removing swiftly and accurately that which is not of God, penetrating our soul and our spirit, our joints and our marrow, giving rest to our souls if we will not doubt or disbelieve God's word. And then in verse 13, It says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
The author ties up the soul and spirit with joint and marrow and the thoughts and intents of the heart with here, uh, verse 13. Nothing is hidden from the Lord, not even our innermost thoughts, our feelings. Nothing is shielded from the power of the word of God. Others may not see those hidden parts of our person, of our lives, our hearts, our thoughts, but God sees everything about us and his word will reveal our hearts to ourselves if we don't neglect it, if we are diligent to read it, and then we have the choice to obey it or not. David said in Psalm 119.24, your testimonies are my delight and my counselors. God's word is the best counselor that we will ever have. God's word has answers to every part of our lives and affects every part of our being. And for this reason, we have to be diligent to heed his word and to believe it and trust it completely. As Lorraine said last week, the unbelief precedes the disobedience. When we depart from the authority of the word of God, we have departed from the God of the word. The word of God and God of the word are inseparably united. And we would be wise women to be aware of our natural tendency in our flesh to develop a heart of unbelief that fails to acknowledge that God's word is eternally true. That's, that's our tendency. That's our natural. Our flesh wants to do that. But we have to be diligent to believe that God's word is truth. And on top of all this about the word of God, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Then in verse 14 of the, the same uh, chapter, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. First John 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is called the word of life. So tonight, what is our attitude regarding the word of God? Do we trust it completely? Do we believe it? Is there an area of disbelief in the word of God or the God of the word? What is the Lord speaking or asking of us tonight? But we've been hardening our hearts in disbelief or disobedience. All this will cause unrest in our hearts and in our souls. But if we yield to belief, trust, and obedience to the word of God, we will be delivered from sinful, deadly elements and find rest for our hearts and our souls here and hereafter. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change the people of God. God has given us his Word to help us enter into his promised rest. And the second aid in entering God's rest is prayer, which is our third point. Rest through prayer, verses 14 through 16. Let's read those. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. There's our third exhortation. But we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We also read our fourth exhortation here. In uh, chapter 2, the writer introduced some of the ways in which Jesus is a better high priest. And so now, in chapter 4, the writer gives us a little more detail about the better priesthood of Jesus. And we're only going to touch on this lightly because as we go into the next chapter, it will be developed more fully. 
But verse 14 says that Jesus is a great high priest who passed through the heavens and is the Son of God. And so the writer here is reiterating the gospel message that Jesus is human and divine. And he's bridging the fact that by Christ's humanity, he has become a sympathetic high priest. Christ was not a priest while on earth. He became our priest when he ascended to heaven. He died down here to save us, and he's now in heaven to help us and intercede for us. Romans 8.34 tells us that Christ died, is risen, and is at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7 uh, in verses 24 and 25, it tells us that Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood and always makes intercession for those who come to God through him. So Jesus is a better, superior high priest because of his position in heaven. Other priests who worked in the temple, uh, that's where they did their work. But Jesus went directly into the presence of God. He passed through the heavens. Verse 15 tells us that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is compassionate and understanding because as a human being, he was tested or tempted in every way that we are. Verse 15, uh, King James renders this, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And this can be translated, touched with the experience of our weaknesses. What are the major forces of our testing or temptation or weaknesses? The world, the devil, and our flesh, right? And Jesus knew these as well as we do. The world despised and rejected him. The devil wanted to destroy him. And he lived in a human body with human needs and weaknesses just like ours. But verse 15 is very clear that Jesus was yet without sin. Unlike the Levitical priest, the priest had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. But unlike them, Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin. And at the time of sympathizing or at the same time of sympathizing with our weaknesses, Jesus set the example of how to live in a way that pleases the Father in the midst of testing and temptations and weaknesses. Jesus is our great high priest because he became a human being and he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he became a human being. He understands our struggles and he has compassion on us because he became a human being. And he intercedes for us because he knows what it's like to be a human being. There's a story I found that is appropriate here. The story goes, it's called The Puppy. A man put up a sign in his yard that read, Puppies for sale. Among those who came to inquire was a young boy. Please, mister, he said, I'd like to buy one of your puppies if they don't cost too much. Well, son, they're $25. The boy looked crushed. I've only got $2.05. and Could I see them anyway? Of course. Maybe we can work something out, said the man. The lad's eyes danced at the sight of those five little fur balls. I heard that one had a bad leg, said the boy. Yes, I'm afraid she'll be crippled for life. Well, that's the puppy I want. Could I pay for her a little at a time? The man responded, but she'll always have a limp. Smiling bravely, the boy pulled up one pant leg, revealing a brace. I don't walk good either. Then looking at the puppy sympathetically, he continued, I guess she'll need a lot of love and help, 
I sure did. It's not so easy being crippled. Here, take her, said the man. I know you'll give her a good home and just forget the money. What a picture of our Lord's compassion. He's been in this body. He knows our weaknesses, our temptations, and our trials. And he intercedes for us. And he has set the example of being able to go through those yet without sin. Verse 16 tells us that because we have a great high priest who is compassionate and understanding, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness or confidence. The word grace here is used to describe God's throne. It means we can approach God's throne without fear, and it's a place of rest for our souls. We have God's grace because of Jesus' ultimate act of love and submission to the Father on our behalf when he offered himself as the sacrifice for our sin. God's throne of grace was formerly the throne of judgment for us, but it is now a throne of grace, a mercy seat. Boldly means with liberty, frankness, and perfect ease. In time of need, it has the meaning of appropriate and well-timed, coming just when we need it. I like uh, the way the Living Bible renders these verses. Uh, I'm sorry, Philippians 4, 6, 4, 6 and 7 I like the way the Living Bible renders these verses. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank him for his answers. And if you do this, you will experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will keep your thoughts and your hearts quiet and at rest as you trust in Jesus Christ. Knowing that Jesus gives us entrance to God's throne of grace and that God's mercy is available to us as Jesus Christ, we can count on him in our time of need. And this should give us rest for our souls. Coming to God's throne is a privilege granted to us, given, ready to give to us only through Jesus Christ. Prayers in general don't reach God's throne. There are many who earnestly pray, but they pray to someone or something else other than Jesus Christ. The only prayers that God hears are those that come through our great high priest to his throne of grace. Jesus is the only one who has passed through the heavens and is the son of God, our great high priest. So what is your need tonight? Do we truly, truly realize that on the other end of our praying, there is a great high priest listening? Do we really, really realize that, ladies? As we pray, there is our great high priest on the other end of that prayer, listening. He's a living, personal God. He hears, he thinks, he speaks, he feels, and he acts on our behalf. Our Savior knows the trials of our hearts, and he understands the struggles, struggles that we endure. He can identify with us on an intimate level, and he wants to hear from us. He wants to speak to us, and he wants to help us with our weaknesses. Jesus wants us to come to him and make full use of this privilege of prayer. This verse should give us hope and encouragement. And we would be wise women to hold fast our confession of faith in Jesus Christ and come to his throne in time of need. God has given us prayer as an aid in entering his promised rest. So, in conclusion, we've heard it said, don't be a hater, right? Don't be a hater. 
But the book of Hebrews has better advice. Don't be a doubter. Another, another little story I read in a devotion, and this one's entitled, The War is Over. The bitter conflict had finally ended between the North and South. The soldiers of the U.S. Civil War were free to return to their families, but a number of them remained hidden in the woods, living on berries. They either didn't hear or didn't believe that the war was over, so they continued enduring miserable conditions when they could have been back home. And it's something like that in our spiritual realm. Christ has made peace between God and man by dying in our place. He paid sin's penalty on the cross. Anyone who accepts his sacrifice will be forgiven by a holy God. Sadly, many people refuse to believe the gospel and continue to live as spiritual fugitives. And some, even those who have placed their trust in Christ, live on almost the same level. Either out of ignorance or unwillingness, they fail to claim the promises of God's word. They do not experience the joy and assurance that should accompany salvation. They do not draw from their relationship with God the comfort and peace he intends for his children. They are objects of his love, care, and provision, but they live as if they were orphans. Ladies, tonight, if you are not living in God's rest in spite of of circumstances or the conditions of this world, it's time to come to the rest God has for us. It's time to come home. The war is over. God has made that peace for us, and we just need to receive his rest through Jesus Christ. We can enter the promise of God's rest through faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, and he has given his word and the privilege of prayer to aid us and entering his rest. Won't you enter the rest of God, ladies? Let's pray.